Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to your word now, we ask for you to make it effective in our lives, that you would peel back the layers, help us to see, lift the the veil that we might see and understand and know and learn, that is, is not information that we need, but a person. Help us to know Jesus today. Help us to see him, to trust him and to adore him more. We pray all of this in his almighty name. Amen. Please be seated. Somewhere early in our relationship, I made a heartfelt commitment to Leslie that I would lasso the moon for her. I meant it. She laughed. I'm the idealist. She's the realist. Yesterday, we made a track to one of my least favorite places, Ikea, to replace a piece of broken furniture. And as we were walking around the store, I told her, remember I said I'd last of the moon for you, this counts. (laughs) She laughed. While I have failed miserably to do anything close to lassoing the moon for Leslie, I still mean it and she still laughs. We really both laugh because we know that this is just sentiment. A quote from an old Jimmy Stewart movie, something that sounds sweet and kind, and maybe it it is the words I need to try and express my love for her, that if I could, I would, but at the end of the day, there'll be no lassoing of the moon. At the close of Matthew's Gospel, we have a familiar passage known as the Great Commission. This is a passage of Scripture that is often preached in the context of missions or evangelism, And it's often preached with this exhortation to believers to think beyond just seeking our own comfort or pleasure in this life. That there are, there's the need, there's an urgency that others might be uh, made known, uh, the person and the work of Jesus, to make disciples. In this, 
is a tremendous promise, though, found in these last words that Matthew recorded of Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That last sentence, I am with you always, is not just applicable to, in our efforts to spread the gospel. This is especially comforting. Um, I wrote four things. This isn't an exhaustive list, but I wrote these things on Thursday. And since writing this, I have encountered all four of them in God's providence with people I've talked to or this morning even something that I read. The first thing I wrote as far as God's presence with us being a comfort is we, when we suffer for the name of Christ or are persecuted. I got an email this morning from a ministry that promotes the, the, the persecuted church, promotes meaning, you know, calls us to pray for the persecuted church. And the exhortation in the email uh, from this pastor who met, went, went and met with persecuted Christians in a closed country was that they, they, they found comfort in knowing they were not alone, that Christ was with them. We're comforted with Christ's presence when we grieve great losses in this life. Messaging back and forth Friday with a dear friend who suddenly lost his wife recently, grieving her passing, just still in shock. It was sudden. And yet, what did he write? But that the comfort of his heart was knowing that Christ was with him, that he would never leave him or forsake him. We're comforted by Christ's presence when we're sinned against by others and our hearts are deeply harmed by the mistreatment or abuses of others. Again, a conversation on the phone with someone grieving the sins of others and the effects of those sins on not just them, but their family and their church, drawing comfort from Emmanuel, God with us, that we're not alone. Finally, when we face our own sinfulness and the consequences of our own choices, again, a conversation with a brother who's struggling and yet being called to and remember that even in his sinfulness, God would not abandon him. He would not leave him. In all of life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, Jesus has promised, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And this is no mere sentiment. This is no lassoing the moon. This is real and true and deep and unending. I will never leave you. Quoted over and over again in Scripture, found also in Hebrews 13. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah 41.10 The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6 We see these promises over and over again in Scripture. Now, what does this have to do with Revelation 1? And why are you harping on this this morning, Seth? Well, because for all that we think, Revelation is about the future, and it is. It certainly speaks to the future. I'm driving home this point as we start off this adventure through this book, that it is truly about the present. It is about the future, but it's not just about the future. John is writing to these churches in their present need with the hope 
that Christ is reigning and present among them, that He is working, that the gates of hell would not prevail against them, that the church, even as it faced persecution, and these churches were facing, but were about to face even greater persecution, that God was indeed with them. So John is here. He's in his own tribulation. He's in exile on the island of Patmos. He's faced persecution. He's writing to churches that are facing persecution to provide them with the comfort found in Christ alone. John was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. They were as close as brothers. Uh, John was uh, a good bit younger probably than Jesus. And so now here he is, uh, you know, 90s maybe? I mean, advanced in years, alone, on this island, imprisoned. He says, on account of the word and testimony of Jesus. In other words, because he preached the gospel, he was here on the island of Patmos. And Jesus comes to him with the words of encouragement and the presence of his peace, or the peace of his presence, rather. Now, I'm guessing, and you might be thinking this, that no one in this room has gotten a vision like this. And you might be thinking, yes, Seth, I would be comforted if Jesus came and put his hand on me and said, fear not. Well, we all would. But let's not make too much about this. This is John's only recorded vision that I'm aware of. This was not his daily experience. This was not how he functioned on a day-to-day basis. He functioned on a day-to-day basis just like we do. This was a vision given for special revelation that we might come. And we have something that John didn't have. We have the completed canon. We have God's word to us in its final form that we might go and be taught and encouraged and comforted by his word and his presence with us. See, we need not know every detail about the future, although we want to know, we certainly do, but we need to simply know the one who holds the future. And this is what is given to us in the book of Revelation. This hope-filled message that John received from Jesus was that, Fear not, I am the first and the last, Jesus says to him. He goes on to explain the symbols. Isn't that helpful? As we read through Revelation, so many images and symbols that we don't understand. Here Jesus tells us what the symbols represent. That the lampstands are the uh, the churches. That the angels uh, or the stars in his hand represent angels. That is, he holds and cares for and nurtures and shepherds and leads his church. In other words, Christ is with us. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us. He is with us even now as we gather together and worship. He's with us daily. The risen and reigning King. And so we have nothing to fear. Let's look now in verse 9. We see that he is on the island of Patmos. We, uh, we know where this is today. This is off the coast of modern Turkey. It's a small island, like 13 square miles small. Even the current population is about 3,000 people. It's not very big. It's rocky. It's, uh, if you look at Wikipedia, the pictures do look nice today, but I don't think that's what it looked like uh, in John's day. I think this was... We don't know a lot. There's not a lot of specificity about the time. We know from other historical sources that there was a penal colony there, that it was used for exile, so I don't think there were all the nice uh, pristine buildings that are there today. And he mentions, um, you know, he doesn't say, I am in exile, I am in imprisonment, but he talks about the fact that he is in tribulation. He speaks that he's there on account of the word and the testimony of Jesus, 
And so when we put all of this together, and we know the history from other sources that there was a penal colony there, I think it's, we can be fairly certain that this was the condition. But even though some may suggest that Paul meant, or John meant that he was there on account of the gospel, that he was there to preach the gospel, that he was there as an evangelist, his emphasis isn't on that. His emphasis is on suffering. I mean, that's what he's talking about. Look at how he describes himself and addresses his readers. He says, your brother and partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. He doesn't come to them as apostle. I'm Apostle John with authority. He comes to them as brother and not just brother. He comes to them as partner in the gospel. We've talked about the priesthood of all believers, that there isn't a hierarchy that we are all saved equally. Some of us aren't saved more. There's a call on all of us that we are priests in the kingdom of Christ. He comes as their brother and partner. He mentions three things, tribulation, kingdom, and patient endurance. Now, what we don't see in our English translations that's there in the original is that there's only one definite article. And so instead of saying the, the, the for each of those lists, there's one at the beginning, meaning this is one thing. In other words, we could say it this way, that we are called to patient endurance in the midst of tribulation to reign in the kingdom. Let me say that again. We are called to patient endurance in the midst of tribulation to reign in the kingdom. And you say, how upside down is that? How backwards is that? Rulers of kingdoms don't have to be patient they don't face tribulation. Rulers of kingdoms call the shots. They get what they want when they want it. And yet, in the kingdom of Christ, we're called to tribulation and patiently enduring through that tribulation. We have talked about it so many times that the kingdom of God is really upside down. It's perplexing. It's mysterious. It shames the wisdom of the world. Kingdom of God, the first are last and the last are first. The weak are made strong. The wisdom of this world is foolishness. And the foolishness of the cross is the very wisdom of God by which we're saved. John is here describing the upside-down kingdom of Jesus that is ruled with love instead of fear. Not as the the world rules in fear. Christ rules in love. This kingdom functions by grace. The kingdoms of the world function by achievement, that you earn it. The kingdom of God displays as wisdom that which confounds the earthly wise, making them think it is foolishness. The world cannot understand it. It doesn't make sense. And if we don't come with eyes of faith to the kingdom, it doesn't make sense to us either. So we are called with John, with the seven churches, our brother and partner to persist with patience in all of life's difficulties, with a continued faith in the one who has saved us. In this perceived weakness, Christ rules through us. I don't think we like to hear this. We want it the other way, right? We, want, we, we would much rather rule it. Lord, give me a platform. Make me famous. Give me tons of money. And then I'd, I'd spread your fame. You know, I'd make you known. I'd tell everybody about you. That's the way you know, we, we'd like to do it just like the world does it. But instead, it's not by us achieving status or power or honor in this world that we might enforce the kingdom. 
Instead, the foolishness of the cross is proclaimed through our lives and our suffering and tribulation as we endure. Cross-stitch that on your pillow. Seriously. The foolishness of the cross is proclaimed through our lives, in our suffering, in tribulation as we endure. We don't want that. None of us would pick that. And yet Christ is reigning through our suffering. Your suffering is used to demonstrate the power of God. You see, as we cling to our Savior, ready to give reason for the hope that is within us, Christ builds His church through us. And though this looks like weakness to human eyes, Jesus said that not even the gates of hell would prevail against His church. And so it's in this suffering that John is writing to churches that are just beginning really to suffer. They're going to face far greater persecution in the days ahead. and He's equipping them. He's far from them. He loves them dearly. He's writing to encourage them. And something happens, something unique. Verse 10 says that he is caught up in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Now we know from early church accounts that the, the, the church transitioned from the practice of worshiping on the Sabbath, Saturday, uh, as the Jewish tradition uh, was, to doing so on Sunday, that this Sunday became the day of Sabbath worship and rest because this was the day of the Lord's resurrection, became known as the Lord's Day. This is one of the few references to it in Scripture. But on this specific day, John has this unusual experience of being in the Spirit. And this is different from the ongoing and dwelling presence of the Spirit that all believers enjoy. This had this was unique and it had a special purpose or a specific purpose. It was to give revelation to John that he might write these things down for the benefit of the church. We see similar things in other visions in Scripture. Uh, Ezekiel 2 had this description. Uh, Ezekiel 2.2 talks about him being in the Spirit, uh, receiving his vision. There are others as well. And John hears a voice that tells him, uh, that's, it, it's, it, it tells him to send this message, write it down, send it to the churches. He describes the voice as being loud like a trumpet. Now, the symbols are beginning to come in, aren't they? Right? We're, you know, the first couple of messages that we jumped into Revelation, the symbols weren't, were, now they're starting to show up in this text. We've got a lot of them here. And here's one, loud like a trumpet. We have to use our, I talked about it last week, our biblical imagination. What does that mean? Does it, does, is this a, a literal trumpet? Is John hearing a trumpet play? Is he interpreting trumpet sounds to be words and writing a, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a literary form to describe. That's the best he can come up with. Um, in, in other passages, like when, uh, Moses receives, uh, the law on Mount Sinai, the voice was like thunder. Right? This is, again, a, a description. It's, it's, it's to help us understand. And so, I, I don't, you know, when, when we read books like the Chronicles of Narnia, we, we have our imagination, or read anything really, we use our imagination. But there are things there that if you read the Chronicles of Narnia when you were really young, you saw the story, right? And if you read the Chronicles of Narnia again to your children, then you started to see the symbols. And your kids are hearing about a lion and you're over there crying because you know Aslan represents Jesus. <laughs> and you see the symbol for what it means, Right? Now, those aren't, the Chronicles of Narnia aren't scripture. You can think of the same thing with Tolkien, but the, the, the idea of how we understand these symbols is important, that we have to use 
our biblical imagination to understand what's here. The, the voice was loud. That's the point. It was loud and it was, uh, uh, maybe it was musical. I don't know, no, but, but, but it was uh, powerful in what he heard. And so this is John's situation. He's there. He's in exile. He's on the island. He appears to be alone and he receives this special revelation. And the thrust of his opening message is, I'm a kingdom partner and I'm calling you as kingdom partners. Let us patiently endure the tribulation by finding our hope in Christ alone. That is his opening words. In verse 12, we see him then turn to see who this is speaking to him. And the first thing that he writes about are seeing seven golden lampstands. And we know from our previous studies that seven is significant, a number representing wholeness or completeness or completion. As far as lampstands are concerned, this is something that we could spend quite a bit of time unpacking. Now, we don't have to guess what the lampstand represents because Jesus, and there's no building up, so I'm, I'm not spoiling anything. We all read the text earlier. We know what he says the lampstands are. The lampstands represent the churches, okay? So I'm not, uh, you know, hopefully not losing you on that. But I want you to understand something about lampstands in terms of the symbol and how they would be understood by the people of God at this time. Two things I want to mention. One... The lampstand was most prominent in the minds of God's people as being within the temple. And there, within the temple, the lampstand, uh, it was a stand with seven lamps on it, similar to what is described here. Uh, this was inside the temple, uh, so in the tabernacle as well. The tabernacle was the kind of the mobile version, the pre-version of the temple, but they had the same elements. And so when you come in, you're in the holy place. This is not the holy of holies. That's the inner place or the most holy place behind the veil. Uh, but before you get there, you have things like the lampstand, the table of showbread. There were these elements that pointed to things. And you you might have seen a menorah in a Jewish friend's house or in Hanukkah decorations. You'll have seven, seven lamps on a stand. That's what this is. That's what it's representing. And the lampstand... In, in the mind of God's people in the temple represented God himself. In other words, it wasn't the, the, the symbol wasn't there for them to, to see that, oh, there's light, but it's actually what is the source of light? It's God who is the source of light. Uh, we see this in his word. Your lamp is a, or your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, Psalm 119. In fact, that whole Psalm of Psalm 118 talks about God's word. Uh, and, and the illuminating uh, power. But again, the emphasis isn't on the Word, but upon the source of this, just like the source of light. First Timothy 6.16 describes God as He who dwells in inapproachable light. And so the lampstand as a symbol in the mind of people's God, or in the, in the mind of God's people, there we go, uh, is to point them to God. That he is the source of light. That he is the source of uh, what, what this symbol represents. Now, I want to pause here and just say for a moment that, you know, I keep jumping back to the Old Testament. And I just want to say that it's, it's one of the things that I, as I've studied over the past few months and as I continue to study, I see again and again. And that is, you can't understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. And that is intimidating because there's a lot of stuff as puzzling as Revelation is. There's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament that's equally as puzzling. And yet we have to keep going back to understand Revelation. We have to understand the Old Testament. So that's why we keep doing this. It's, it's important for us to grasp this. 
So, one, the lampstand, the temple, keep that in mind. The other thing that is worth considering is Zechariah's prophecy in the Old Testament. Zechariah's prophecy was given in part to God's people to instruct them, to encourage them, uh, to direct them to rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. And in this vision that Zechariah experiences, an angel is the mediator in this vision. He's the one who is speaking. Uh, Zechariah sees a lampstand, similar to what we see here. But on either side of the lampstand, he sees two olive trees. And so he asks the angel, what are these olive trees about? This is how the angel responds. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now that's a phrase many of us know, right? It's very familiar. We've heard that in many different... This is the context in which it was given. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's in the context of instructing and encouraging the people of God to rebuild the temple. Saying, in essence, to them, the source of power is not going to be you. It's not going to be your mind. It's not going to be your wisdom. But it's going to be me. I'm going to do this by my spirit through you. I'm going to rebuild the temple. Don't look to yourselves. Look to me. And so what we then have in Revelation is a similar image of God communicating to his people that it's it's not, it's not by our wisdom, it's not by our power that Christ is going to build his church. He is going to do it by the power of the Spirit working in and through us. So the lampstand then represents the churches. Yes, that's what the symbol is. But the point of it is to point us to God, both as the source of light and the source of power as this young church is being built up, even to us today, as our church, the, the local church, but also the church universal, we're not looking to our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power. We're looking to God himself. It's important that we understand how that symbol points us to that. Now, in the midst of the lampstands is one like a son of man. And this is a title that we recognize is attributed to Jesus. In fact, it's the title Jesus used most to describe himself or attributed most to himself. And as we look at the language, son of man, many have thought that this was intended to exemplify his humanity. Son of God, deity, son of man, humanity. That makes sense, at least in English, doesn't it? But when we look at it closer, we realize that it's, 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 it's not that at all. It's actually son of man exemplifies Christ's deity. When we look at how this is used, it's used in several times in the book of Daniel. Son of man, this title describing this person, Daniel, seen in a vision. He writes, was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Does that sound like a man, or does it sound like God, right? So Daniel 7, we see this is clearly pointing to Christ's deity. When we come to the New Testament, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course, the disciples threw out some answers, you know, what people were saying. But this is where Peter famously responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, to which Jesus responds to Peter with a blessing and praise and says, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So the title Son of Man, this image that we're seeing of Jesus is glorified. the glorified Jesus. It is a picture of Jesus demonstrating his deity. That's what John is seeing. John sees Jesus glorified, dressed in priestly garments like the robe and the sash, with hair that is white and eyes like a flame, demonstrating his wisdom and majesty, feet like bronze, signifying his power to judge, with a roaring voice like many waters. 
Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand, has a double-edged sword coming from his mouth, and his face is bright like the sun. In other words, it's hard to even look at. This is not the Jesus that John remembers from his first advent. I mean, it is the same Jesus, but it's not how he's seen him. Jesus is revealing himself with incredible symbolism. Again, we talked about the sword coming from your mouth and how if we saw someone like that, we would be afraid. It looks like, sounds like something out of a horror movie. But this is a symbol. It's meant to communicate something. In fact, all of these things, all of these descriptions, it is what John saw. He did see this. This was Jesus in this, but it was symbols intended to show us something about Jesus. So we talked about his robes, right? The robes and the sash, that he is our priest. He having atoned for our sins, he's now mediating on our behalf. We see the, the white hair and the flaming eyes. He is our wisdom. We see him, his, his, his majesty in this. He's our king. He is our judge, the feet of bronze. He's our prophet. He is the word made flesh. We see the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That is, the word of the gospel will go forth as good news to those who will be saved and as judgment to those who would re- reject Christ. It's a double-edged sword. Jesus has come to John in a vision to show him not simply future events, but to show John and us himself. This is what we need to see in the book of Revelation. We need to see Jesus. We need to look on him and see his glory, his love, his power, his wisdom, and his unending grace in saving us. He alone has the power over all of the harsh realities that we face and all of the difficulties and tribulations that are in our way. And he alone has the power to overcome. He is the one we must see and seek. And that is the vision that's given to us here in Revelation 1. Now John reacts, we see in verse 17, by falling down as though he were dead. This is not surprising. We again look at other examples of visions. We see this in Daniel. He also falls down. Isaiah in his vision describes himself as being undone. Uh, So we can understand this. This is a glorious and, and really dreadful vision. But what is remarkable is not so much John's reaction of falling down, but Jesus' response to John after he falls down. Look in verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What a beautiful picture of the one who is described in verse 5 as him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God, to his God and Father. I think this captures so much of why I wanted to preach through Revelation, that we would see this of Jesus, the one who loves us, who places his hand upon us and says, fear not, that we would really grasp that as we turn the news on or maybe turn the news off, um, as we get news of different things through other mediums, as we experience bad news on a personal level, on a regional level, global level, all of these things, as as we're inundated with these things, where is our hope found? Our hope is found in the one who places his hand on us and says, don't fear. Don't be afraid. He doesn't just tell us not to fear, but he tells us why we shouldn't fear. He says, I'm the first and the last and the living one. G.K. Beale writes, Christ is the force behind history, causing it to fulfill his purposes. John's audience is meant to take confidence in God's sovereignty by allowing it to strengthen their prophetic witness. 
In other words, this is how we're to respond to global pandemics, to political unrest, to shifts in our culture, and to the shocks and surprises that we experience in our lives as a result of living in a fallen world. The one who tells us not to be afraid has the power to care for our every need because he is over all of history. He goes on, I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Remember the title, I'm the firstborn from the dead that he gives in verses 4 and 5. His resurrection then is, 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 he precedes us in this. He's the firstborn, meaning we will follow. He is, this is the proof, this is the guarantee that death is not the end, that our lives are not hopeless, even when we can't make sense of things, that we will be resurrected with Christ. Nothing can separate us from him, not even death. And finally, I have the keys of death and Hades. Because he has these keys, we can patiently endure any tribulation that we face. And folks, we will face tribulation. Jesus told us this. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. There are so many out there that are trying to purport that somehow as Christians, we're, our lives are not going to be difficult. You know, that somehow Jesus is going to fix all of our problems. Yes, he is. He is. In the world to come, in the new heavens and the new earth, when sin is wiped away and every tear is gone. Yes, everything will be fixed and redeemed. But in this life, there is tribulation. But it's not wasted. It's not, the, tribulation is not punitive. We're not earning anything by this. It is the upside down through which God is reigning. To demonstrate the foolishness of the cross is actually the power of salvation. That's what our suffering, that's what our tribulation accomplishes. By faith in Jesus, we have nothing to fear In John's uh, first epistle, he writes this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus said, In this world you'll have tribulation, but take, take, take comfort. I've overcome the world. How do we overcome with Him? By believing in Him. By trusting Him. This is a call to faith. In the final verses, Jesus then explains some of the symbols. I know we're out of time. Let me just run through this really quick. Uh, he says, as, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A couple things I want to point out. First, he calls it a mystery. Underline that in your Bible, right? Circle that, highlight that, come back to that. That when you come to pay, there's going to be symbols that he doesn't tell us what they represent. And even in telling us what these represent, there's still mystery. What does it mean that the stars are the angels? Wait, are these heavenly creatures? Some, some think they're heavenly creatures. Some think that these are the ministers of the churches. There's room in the language for either interpretation. The problem is, is if we launch on, or lock on to either one of these understandings, we can take it too far. If we start thinking that Christ the King has its own angel that kind of attends to us, maybe that's true. But if that's where we put our focus, what do we end up doing? Looking around, I don't know, would we be tempted to pray to the angel? I mean, all these things, we're not called to do any of this stuff. Don't, don't make too much out of this. At the same way, if we swing the pendulum the other way and put this emphasis on the ministers, and this happens too often, <clears throat> people to put too much confidence in man. People are going to let you down, including ministers. You hang around me enough, if I haven't already, I'll sin against you. I mean, I, I'm going to let you down, I'm going to disappoint you. 
Don't put your confidence in man. No, the emphasis is not on what the object is. He tells us, okay, it's the angels. It's this heavenly beings, heavenly ministers in a sense, is it earthly ministers. That's not where the emphasis is. The emphasis is on who's holding the stars in his hand. That Jesus is saying to us that our confidence is in Christ alone. He holds in his hand all who would minister. In that sense, we could say it's both. It's both angels. Angels submit to him. He's sovereign over angels. He's sovereign over us all. And that's the point of the verse, that he is the shepherd of the flock and will rule and care for us with strength and tenderness. The lampstands, of course, are the churches. And the emphasis, again, is not on the lampstands, but on the one who stands among the churches. See, the emphasis in both of these cases is the hand of Jesus and the body of Jesus, that he holds his church in his hand and that he stands among his church, that he is with his church, that we are never left forsaken. He is with us. In this life, we have so many things that we could fear. We can make our lists, and even if we cross things off, there'd be new things to add to the list tomorrow, things that we didn't know of. I mean, a year ago, think of what we were you know, it was just on the horizon, some of the stuff that we faced in the past year. Didn't even know what we were going to be afraid of. And we don't know what tomorrow holds either. We will face tribulation, though, difficulty. Many griefs, wounds, and losses that we won't understand that will remain mysterious. Lord, why are you letting this happen? But here in the book of Revelation, what I want us to see and what I want us to come back to again and again is that there is hope, not in the information. Not in the future predictions, but in the person of Jesus. Richard Phillips writes this, More important than giving us clues to the future history, Revelation directs our attention to the one who is Lord of history, the sovereign who stands in glory among the lampstands, and the Savior whose right hand lifts up his people and declares, Fear not. So may we continue to patiently endure in whatever difficulties that we face, with hope in the one who is with us and holds us in his hand. Let's pray. Father, there are a million things that could swim through our minds in these moments as we think of today and tomorrow and as we think about the past and try and make sense of this life. Some things become clear and other things remain mysterious. But one thing we can be certain of, and I pray that you would drill this down in our hearts, You are with us. That we have nothing to fear because you are with us. That you will never leave us. That you will never forsake us. And that nothing can separate us from your love, including the tribulations that we face, including potential persecutions, including our own sin. And so, Lord, for the believers here today, would you drive this deeply into each of our hearts that we would indeed fear not. And for any who have yet to believe, Lord, would you in turn use this to draw them to yourself. That they would see in Christ a tender and powerful Savior. One who is able to right their wrongs, to atone for their sins, and to clothe them with his righteousness. Draw people to yourself, we pray. Lord, we commit our ways to you. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you hold tomorrow. And so may our confidence not be in understanding the future, but in knowing you. So deepen our knowledge of you. Draw us closely to you. 
And may we cling to you as we face tomorrow with confidence. And may we not fear, knowing that you are with us always to the end of the age. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.